Well, amen. Good morning. It's good to see each of you today. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles this time and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Try not to say Luke. It's out of habit. Genesis chapter 3. Next two weeks, well, today and next week, we will be focused on Advent. Uh, Today we will be in Genesis. Next week we will be in Revelation. So Jeremy and I are going to preach the entire Bible in two weeks. That's the plan. Today in Genesis 3, we're dealing with a serpent. Next week, Jeremy from Revelation 12 will be dealing with the seven-headed red dragon. We thought of calling this two-week series a Jurassic Park Christmas. But... We did it because this is not science fiction. This is a true story of how, as one song puts it, the weary world can find hope and rejoice. So this morning, we're going to turn our attention to Genesis chapter 3. I want to read, beginning in verse 1, down through verse 15. Genesis chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Now, remember, as we pick up here in Genesis 3, in context, we are picking up with what's follow, what follows the story of creation there from Genesis 1 and 2. And so, in seven days, God has created the world. He's created Adam and Eve. He's made them, and we know that we see that uh, explained for us from Genesis chapter 2 in particular, and now we pick up with the story in Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can open your words this morning and we thank you that from it, not only do we just simply glean information, we can experience transformation. So Lord, would you open our eyes and our ears and our hearts today and by your Holy Spirit, help us to understand this text and be changed by it. So Lord, help us now as we look into it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When you think about the Christmas story, the Christmas story does not begin in a manger. It actually begins in a garden. In fact, it's in this garden, the first few chapters of the Bible that we find, that we are given all we need to know. Not really all we need to know, but we are given a wealth of information regarding what would come after these early chapters. We're given quite a bit of information regarding this grand narrative of the Bible, really in summary, right here in chapter three. During the season of Christmas, as Christians, we often refer to this as Advent. This word Advent means coming. And so when we talk about Advent, we are talking about the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. But we have to keep in mind that Christ's coming, his coming into the world, did not merely appear out of nowhere. The promise of his coming had been long announced. We get glimpses of this throughout the Old Testament, don't we? When we could go to a passage like Isaiah 9, verses six and seven, where the prophet is speaking of a child to be born, a son to be given. Or in Isaiah 7, 14, where the prophet says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Or we could even go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 there, where we are reminded of the count with, with David. And it says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There are glimpses, snapshots of this child to be born, this one who would come all the way throughout the Old Testament. But when you think about this promise of God in sending a savior, really this promise is found in the very first book of the Bible, the very first few chapters right here in Genesis chapter three. So friends, when you think about Advent or the promise of Advent, the promise of Advent was given to us in Genesis three. Right from the very beginning, we were told of a savior who would come. In fact, I would go as far to say that if you do not start the story of Christmas with Genesis three, then you will not truly fully grasp the significance of what Christ came to do. So we need to go beyond the manger to a garden called Eden for us to see God's plan in full. And that's exactly what we will do this morning from our text today. We're going to consider what God has done. We're gonna consider three concepts that are revealed here in this text that are vital, I would say essential to our understanding of the Christmas narrative because of where it falls within the grand narrative. And from this text, we're going to see three important 
truths or three important concepts that we need to have as a foundation for us to rightly understand Advent. Three observations that we find from this text, and I'll just give them to you up front. We see a rebellion, a curse, and a promise. A rebellion, a curse, and a promise. Let's begin with the rebellion, and you see that in the first 13 verses of Genesis 3. When God created the world, he, as we're told there, the first few chapters, that he created it and it was good. And then when he creates man and woman as the pinnacle of creation, he called it very good. So by the time you get to the end of Genesis 2, we know that we have a good, in fact, a very good creation. The perfect God creates a perfect world with perfect people. And you get to the end of Genesis chapter two, you think, wow, this is, this is amazing, this is delightful. This is something else. But then when you come to chapter three, things take a radical turn. A serpent appears and things begin to deteriorate quite quickly. Now we know when we read the first two chapters of Genesis that God speaks and creation happens. He, he creates out of nothing. He, merely by the, the word spoken, creation happens. So God's voice, God's word, was responsible for this good, this very good creation. It's his voice that spoke it into existence, but now when we get to chapter three, another voice appears. Another word speaks. And this voice, this word, has a clear agenda to spur on a rebellion against the Creator. And, Gen and Genesis chapter 3 documents that for us quite clearly. Genesis 3 is what's often referred to as the fall, when humanity plunges headlong into sinful rebellion against God. It's when sin enters the world and man falls from his innocent state and stands now condemned before God. Genesis 3 is essential. Brothers and sisters, if you do not understand Genesis 3, you will not understand the rest of the Bible. If you take Genesis 3 out, then, then the rest of the story crumbles. It's that important. This chapter right here, if, if you don't understand Genesis 3, you will have no clue about Christmas. You might get a nice gift, but you will have no clue about what it meant for Christ to come into the world. Jesus came because Genesis 3 happened. A couple of things we consider about the fall as we move through this text. Notice, first of all, this strategy of the serpent, the strategy that, that he employs. The serpent is, is not just another voice in the narrative. He has a particular focus in mind. He is present to lead the woman and the man, Adam and Eve, away from trusting and believing God's word. Watch how this unfolds as you walk through this text. He, he leads this couple away from God in a very deliberate, way, in, in a deliberate fashion. First of all, notice how God's word is doubted. The very first thing the serpent does is to cast doubt on what God had said. You see it there, don't you? 
Serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, this is verse one, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say, you see how he's casting doubt on God's word. I, I love what Martin Luther said. He said, it's stupid to think that when Eve, as he did say stupid, he, he said it's stupid to think, that was one of his more milder words that he would often use. He said, it's stupid to think that when Eve had looked at the tree that she gradually became inflamed with the desire to pick the fruit until at last, overcome by her desire, she brought the fruit to her mouth. Now Luther's point here was that the main temptation was not the fruit itself. He continues and says, for the chief temptation was to listen to another word and to depart from the one God had previously spoken. You see, the root issue here was whether at the end of the day, Eve was going to believe God's word and to trust in that or to believe a word of another and to trust in that. It's the same thing at the heart of any temptation, isn't it, that comes before us? Will we take God at his word? Will we trust God's word? Or will we listen to another word? You see, the serpent begins to cast doubts. Did God actually say? And begins to cast doubt in her mind as to whether or not God's word could be fully trusted. But not only that, you see how God's word is distorted. Now Eve has this prime opportunity to set the serpent straight and she kind of does and then makes a bit of a mistake. Notice what she says, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Had she stopped there, she would have been fine. But what does she do? She adds to God's word. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. God never spoke a word about touching the tree, just merely eating from it. So she added to the restrictions for, for God never said, neither shall you touch it. So now God's word is being doubted, or excuse me, now God's word is being distorted after it's, it's being doubted. You see that, don't you? We often do this too. We, we are often guilty of either overstating or understating a matter, depending on how it may or may not benefit us in the moment. And then we have the serpent in verse four, where he literally completely contradicts the truth. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Like, it's a complete contradiction of what God had said would happen. He's now denying the truthfulness of what, the, whether or not God's word could, could be believed. He, he's saying, no, you won't die. In fact, he's attacking the character of God, isn't he? He's denying the justice of God and he's calling God a liar. He's questioning his goodness at this moment. There's so many things that are happening right here in Genesis 3. It's a lot. But you see at the end of the day how, how the word of God is now being doubted and, and it's being distorted, if not outright contradicted. And then we see how, number three, it's ignored. When you read the account of the fall, there, there's, an, I think, an important question. 
You see that in verse six, the, the fall happens. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was there with her and he ate. One of the questions that we, we, we often pose and before you get really to the, to the rest of this and specifically verse six is where, where's Adam? He appears in verse six only to be given the fruit and eat, he eats it along there with, with Eve. Where had he been up until now? Well, the text tells us. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. He had been there the entire time and not one time did he speak up and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. He stood there and said nothing. And therefore, both of them ignored God's command. Once you see that strategy unfold, but then there's the result that happens. There was an immediate impact once the man and the woman took the fruit and ate of it. Now, for the first time, God's perfect creation had been infiltrated by a, the dark reality and impact of sin. Immediately, Adam and Eve respond in two ways. You, you, you see how they respond, one, in, with fear and shame. They, they've never been afraid before, nor had they ever known what it means to, to have shame. Now they knew both, and so they quickly sewed fig leaves and made themselves loincloths to kind of cover their, their nakedness. Not only did they, they experience fear and shame, they also played the blame game, didn't they? You see that in verses 12 and 13. They have this dialogue, they, they, they sow, in verse seven, they, they, they clothe themselves, and then they have an encounter with God, and God questions them as to what's going on. And then notice, once they are called out for their rebellion, what happens? The man said, well, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Think about that, Adam would rather blame God and his wife for his sin than own it himself. He blames God, the woman you gave me, God. You see how he puts that back in God's lap? And Eve would rather cast blame to the serpent. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate, neither of which taking ownership of their own refusal to obey God's word that he had spoken clearly to them. So here in just one act of human defiance, an entire creation that was originally pronounced very good is now filled with sin and cursed. This one act now impacts the entirety of creation. All the brokenness and all the depravity that you see in this world, that you, that you see, that you experience, all of the, the sin, the ugliness of sin in your own heart and flesh, all of it finds its roots right back here to Eden. This is, this is the great problem that the entire world has. It finds its roots right here in a garden called Eden. When a man and woman refuse to obey God's word and believe the word of a deceiver. So what happens? 
Well, we know that there's a curse, which is the second point. You pick up there in verse 14, after they blamed everybody else but themselves, the Lord begins to issue a curse. You see, in verse 14, he curses the serpent. Verse 16, the woman, and verse 17, the man. But notice what he says to the serpent. This is kind of where we want to focus our our attention this morning is verses 14 and 15. Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So after confronting Adam and Eve there in the garden, God immediately hands down their sentence, just as he had warned. See, these three curses, these judgments are handed down. And not only that, Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. Instead of living in paradise with plenty of food, plenty of joy, plenty of perfection, they would now live on the earth under a curse, an earth that would be filled with thorns and thistles. And then in verse 19, we go on to read, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. God reminded them that they would die. He said, if you break this command of mine, you will die. And he reminds them here that that's exactly what they would experience. It'd be several hundred years later, but they would experience death. This is the reality that we all face, friends. Because we are the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And through them, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul reminds us that in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. It's exactly what we're reading about in Genesis 3. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is the problem that we have. This is the the issue that's that's at stake here. All have sinned and are deserving of God's judgment. None of you, none of us, no one ever, except Jesus, can say, well, that's true of everybody else but me. I'm not a sinner. You, You can't say that. You just sinned if you did. Right, so that's the problem. Because we now have an inherited guilt, an inherited corruption through Adam and Eve, we are now linked to them and their fall is our fall. Their sin, their rebellion becomes our sin, our rebellion, and we only continue to manifest that in our human depravity as we live out life. Therefore, we are all under a curse. We are all deserving of God's judgment. Why is that fitting? That sounds harsh. It's fitting because God is righteous. He is holy. He is just. 
If you have a hard time understanding why the, 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 the judgment of God is a right thing, then we really, at the end of the day, have a false understanding of who God in his character is. So this is the great problem. This is the great curse that we see on, on the world. But even though this passage is filled with deception, with temptation, with sin and judgment. In the midst of all of the darkness that we find in Genesis 3, there is a ray of hope. There's a promise that's made right here in this text that gives us hope. And it's that very promise that we celebrate at Christmas time. Even though God responds to the rebellion of Adam and Eve with judgment, he also responds with grace. And this grace is connected to this promise that he, that he grants. Which leads me to the third point. And when you read Genesis 3, and you see all that, that, that takes place with, with the fall, with, with the fall of humanity into sin, you, you don't have to wait till John 3.16 to find hope. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. A verse that, that was pretty well known. God loved the world, he gives his son to the world that anyone who believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You, you don't have to wait, it's a great text. But you don't have to wait to get to John 3.16 if you're reading through the Bible to find hope. It's right here in Genesis 3.15. When the Lord says, I will put enmity, he's speaking to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, between your seed and hers. And then he refers to the seed of the her when he says, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is often referred to as, what many refer to as the first gospel, first promise that you have of hope. Even though Adam and Eve had just turned their backs upon their creator, even though they fell for the lure of the serpent, they had cast aside God's word and believed in another, even though they would be banished from this perfect paradise and eventually die, God gives a word of promise and hope. It's a promise of a seed, meaning that there would be one, and we know that this seed is a he, it's a person who would later come. And from this point forward, there is this expectation of promise present until the coming of Christ in the New Testament, until Christmas, until what we celebrate, we call Christmas, this Advent, the coming of Christ is the coming of this seed, this promised seed right here from Genesis 3, 15. There would be this long, notice the promise, the promise is twofold, there would be enmity, but victory. I will put enmity between you and the woman. There will be this, this battle, this, this, this struggle between good and evil, so to speak. And it would seem that evil would prevail even as Jesus is nailed to a cross, but that's not what happens. 
There's not a, a defeat that Jesus takes. What we find here in Genesis 3.15 is a promise of victory. Even though, even though the serpent will have bitten the heel of this promised seed, the promised seed will ultimately crush the head, bruise the head of the serpent. This lays the foundation for that day when Jesus would come and accomplish the rescue that we all needed. In Galatians 4, verse 4, Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul's declaration of the one who would come is really connected all the way back. Genesis, or Galatians 4.4, 4, John 3.16, everything in the New Testament finds its trace all the way back to this promise in Genesis 3.15. Again, Paul says in Romans 5 verse 17, if because one man's trespass, referring to Adam and Eve, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. In Adam, we find death. In Christ, we find life. In Adam, we find condemnation and judgment. In Christ, we find deliverance and reconciliation. Because not only does Genesis 3 shine a ray of light into a very dark reality by pointing to this promise seed, it also foreshadows exactly how God would rescue us. If you keep reading, let's go back to Genesis 3. Look at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for, wife, or for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, why was that needed? They've already clothed themselves. You go back and look, right? Verse seven, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Why is it now that God is clothing them in animal skins? Pastor Kent Hughes put it this way. He said, it's clear, referring to verse 21, it's clear that this is a sovereign work of God conceived and executed by God alone. It's a work that Adam and Eve would never have conceived of because it involved the unprecedented taking of life. Their self-made attempts to cover themselves in inadequate fig leaf loincloths were replaced by clothing made by God himself. And so as the Old Testament sacrificial system would begin to develop over time, and be established, no priest worth his weight would be able to read this text in Genesis 3 verse 21 and not make the connection to atonement. Then an animal had to be killed and blood had to be shed so that those could be clothed. Even though we're under the curse of sin, God pledges, he promises to bring rescue from this curse through the sending of this seed. And that's exactly what we find, isn't it? In fact, it's exactly what Paul tells us happened in Christ. He, he says from Galatians 3, verses 10 and 13, he says, for all, he's talking about works of the law, because we know later on we're given the law and commands to follow. Adam and Eve couldn't follow one command, and then we're given more later. None of us can keep those. 
So, the, so Paul's point, he, he, he talks about this a lot, is that yes, God has given a command. Adam and Eve have already set the precedent for this. You can't keep commandments and live. You will fail every time. And so if, friend, if you're here today and you think, all I have to do is just keep the 10 commandments and God will be okay with me, you, you've already failed. You can't. So that's what Paul says. He says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. What the law does is it shows you just how bad you are. It reveals, it exposes your corruption, right? For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, Paul says. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. So what you have in Genesis three is a rebellion, and then you have God cursing the serpent, the man and the woman, giving a promise in the midst of that curse that there would later come a seed who would crush the head of this serpent. And brothers and sisters, what Paul tells us when we get to the New Testament is that this one promised seed who is Jesus Christ, not only would he be born, as the one song said, he was born to bleed. He was born to bleed and as he bled, he becomes a curse for us in our place as a substitute so that our sins could be forgiven and we could be right with God. So brothers and sisters, God is telling us right here in the first three chapters of the Bible, he's telling us a lot. He's telling us that he is good and he's telling us that even when we presume upon his goodness and forsake him, he is still willing to extend grace and hope. That's the heart of the gospel, isn't it? God is good. And even when we presume upon his goodness and we forsake his ways and we tell him that his law and his standard is not good enough for us, we've got a better way and we turn our backs on him, we stand then guilty before him. And he's still willing to give us grace. Still so much so that he would send his only son into this world, this promised offspring who would come and bring us deliverance. You know, Genesis 3, Genesis 3 presents, he, it presents us with our greatest problem, yet it also gives us our greatest promise. The seed of the woman who would live, who would die and be raised again for our redemption. The baby born in a manger in Bethlehem is the man who would stand and die on a cross outside of Jerusalem. And even though he would be opposed from every direction, the fatal blow would not come from a nail piercing Jesus's hands and feet. The fatal blow would come from Jesus's nail scarred feet, crushing the head of the serpent once and for all as he declares victory over sin and death. Friends, the tr truth of John 3.16 is a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. That's why Christmas is such an important celebration. It's important because God's promised seed has come. And because he's come, your sins can be forgiven. You can have hope. 
and joy evermore. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful that you give us promises that we can trust. Every single one of us in this room have made promises that we've broken. We've, we've been a people who've never kept our word. We've not kept our word perfectly. We've never been able to do that because we have this problem of sin. And yet, Lord, in your kindness and grace, you gave us a promise, a promise of one who would come and who would win a victory on our behalf, a victory we could have never won on our own, a victory we could have never achieved in our own efforts, but a victory that was achieved and accomplished through the sending of your son, this promised seed, who would come into this world, live a life of perfection and yet die a death, a terrible death on a cross, suffering, becoming a curse, taking upon himself the judgment we deserved so that our sins could be forgiven and we could be reconciled with you. Lord, thank you for what you've done. Thank you, Lord, that you can show us this, this promise from the Old Testament. We see it in the fulfillment of Jesus' coming. Advent means nothing if we don't have an understanding of why Jesus came. And so, Lord, we thank you for helping us connect the dots between Genesis 3.15 and John 3.16. Lord, for the promise that was made in the Old Testament and the promise that was fulfilled in the New Testament. Lord, we rejoice this very day because we have a Savior. We have a Redeemer. Lord, we have one who came and won victory for us. So Lord, as we celebrate this Christmas season, would you keep this at the forefront of our celebration? Would you help us to, to cling to that promise and that truth and hope? Would you help us to rejoice? Lord, we know that you are good and we know that we are sinners. And yet, God, in your grace, you reconciled us to yourself. We thank you for that. We pray this all in Jesus' name.